Boris, please go ahead. So my question is about uh, working in relationship with the larger consciousness system. Um, I've been, I mean, I've been working a lot. Anyway, I've been uh, experiencing a deeper relationship with the LCS, though I can see it's still very limited uh, because of my belief. Also, because I'm getting back every time into my pattern about that idea I have about LCS and or even stuff that don't belong to me. So my question is about um, what are the biggest, I would say, belief uh, or limiting belief we have about the RCS and about re relationship with the RCS. What is the biggest belief you mean that most people have about that? It's just kind yeah. of your... Yeah, I mean, especially toward uh, building a, a relationship with the RCS. Well, you know, to build a relationship with the LCS, you just have to be authentic. You have to share just who and what you are, where you're going, what you, you know, how you'd like to grow, why you'd like to grow. So it's just a matter of being authentic and connecting at an authentic level. You're not asking for anything really you're not asking for advice you're not asking for you know a new mercedes you're not asking for you know anything in particular you know whereas you know a lot of times when people pray they pray for a certain thing you know I pray for this event to happen and that event not to happen it's it's very uh kind of object oriented you know it's like looking for gifts yeah, so that is not helpful. And that's, you know, people have a tendency to do that because out of their culture, you know, prayer is probably the closest thing to meditation that a lot of people do. And in that case, it's more about, uh, you know, you hoping to get something more powerful than you to, to make your life more the way you want it. And that's mostly just ego stuff. So it doesn't, you know, it tends not to work very well because it's more ego than anything else. The best way to connect with the system is just to be completely sincere and honest. And you're not going to you're not going to trick the system and your image isn't going to fool the system. So the more honest and sincere you are, then you know, the more likely you'll really have a good communication. So I would say you go without expecting anything, without, you know, you don't go expecting you're going to receive a prize or you're going to get, uh, you know, something that you want or you're going to get profound knowledge or anything like that. It's not a, it's not a source to be uh, used, which I guess is maybe the way a lot of people see it. That might be a common belief that it's a, you know, it's a source that they can use. And then that comes back to what are they going to use it for? Well, if they're using it for things that are mostly centered in their egos, then not much is going to happen. And the system won't pay a whole lot of attention to them. But if, if what they want to use it for is just to, you know, express some of their own feelings about growth and who they are and where they're going and what's helpful. Not necessarily expecting a reply, but just being honest, being sincere, being open. Yeah.
connecting. After all, you're a part of that system. You're just a piece of that system. So if you're just open without any requirements, without any expectations, without any um, prizes and, and boons and benefits and <laughs> other things, you know, you're not asking for, for, uh, for benefits, then you'll have a much better chance to just connect. And you'll feel it. The connection will be one of, you know, at the being level connection, you'll just feel it. It'll be obvious to you that you're connected. And at that point, just be, be who you are. You know, here I am. I'm trying to grow up. I'm trying to find my path. I'm trying to take the next step. And here, here's what I'm doing. Here's the things I'm doing. And just let it go. If you get something, you get something. If you don't, you don't. But you're not really asking for anything. You're just making a connection. And it's that just existing with that connection is valuable all in itself. So I guess that would be a second belief that people come with. They, they come with the idea that that uh, they want to walk away with something. You know, it's it's like when you're a kid and they, you go to the fair and they have this thing called grab bag where you give them a nickel and then there's a hundred bags sitting there in a box and you get to pick one up. And, you know, it might have a hundred dollar bill in it or it might just, you know, have a spoonful of dirt. You don't know what's in it. There's just all sorts of things there. So. You don't want to approach the LCS like it's like it's a grab bag that you're looking for something and you're expecting to be healed or be educated or be anything. Just make the connection. Feel it. Connect. We do that with people as well. You know, and often if you have a really, really good friend or somebody that, that uh, you care about, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's just your friend, you don't have to say anything. Just being there. You know, when the, when the two of you are just together and just being there, there can be something very strong, very satisfying, and, and very palpable going on between you without having to take it to the mundane level of language. It's beyond language. And that's the way it should be when you connect with the LCS. It's just a connection. You feel it. You experience it. And you are authentic, and you are sharing who and what you are. No expectation. That would be the way to approach it. Cool. Thank you. All right, Tom, we have several people listening mode only, and they'd like me to ask their question. So I'm going to ask the question from Nicholas E., Tom, when you answer our questions, do you answer based on some sort of universal intelligence, or do we all have a separate intuitive personality who feeds you the answers? Whatever it is, could you talk a little around this? Well, I don't. I don't know that I would. I would um, describe it in either of those two ways. Basically, when I get a question. The first thing I do before I answer it is try to get a sense of what the question actually means to the person that's asking it, to get the context. Because questions all come with a context. There's some meaning. There's something that's personally connected behind that question. The question is just out there and is kind of theoretical, perhaps. But there's significant personal context. And I try to pick up on that. What is the context? 
What's the person really want to know? What is it that I can tell them that's actually going to be helpful to them? And it's not, you know, I'm getting data from a library of universal knowledge or something like that. It's just a matter of connecting with that person, needing to know that context, and the context just comes. It's just, you know, it's, it becomes obvious what the context is. And it's not that I ask specific questions, or why did he ask that question, and, you know, what does he want for an answer? I don't ask questions like that. I just open myself up. How can I be helpful? You know, how can I, you know, what can I say that's really going to be helpful to that person within the context of their question? And I get some information. It's not like I'm reading it out of a book. I just get a, it's a, it's an intuitive telepathic thing is you could just get a whole paragraph, you know, a whole something about where you're going. And as I talk, I'm still doing that. So I'm speaking while I'm answering a question and I'm still connecting with the question as the question goes on. So I kind of hone in on it a little better because as I say things, the other person is thinking they're getting the ideas and they may be thinking something like, well, yeah, okay, but that's not really what I wanted to know. You know, so I'll hear that and then I'll, change maybe a little bit and they'll change and after five or ten minutes of the conversation i'm more likely to be hitting it you know where they really need it so they typically start out a little general and then focus more as we go so it's just a matter of that information is available if you just open yourself to it and it's not a skill so much as you learn the, is it is getting rid of the stuff that blocks it. So it's not like you have to learn something new. You just have to get rid of some of the junk that's old. That's, I guess, the best way to, to say it. It's just a matter of listening. I mean, people who are really good listeners, that's what they do. They're not just hearing the words and processing the words. Some people are really good listeners, and they're doing the same thing I do. They listen with more than just their ears, more than just the language. They listen in a in a broader uh, uh, you know mental space with a higher a higher uh, what, what do we say a, a greater um, decision space with more information. So that's all that's really going on when I answer when I answer questions, and sometimes I get it pretty close, and sometimes I don't. Depends. Sometimes the person asking the question, their mind's flitting around all sorts of things. Sometimes they're so excited about having to ask a question in front of a lot of people that their minds are just kind of going like this. You know, they're they're all over. And when that's going on, you know, it's a little hard to focus in on what's going on because their mind is flying around in circles. So sometimes I do real well. Sometimes I miss it. It just depends on uh, whether we can get a connection going over the short period of time that you know, we're doing the, the Q&A with each other. So it kind of depends on the individual as well and how settled their mind space is and how focused they are on on uh, the question. So particularly when you read a question, you know, when you're reading it, sometimes your mind can be disconnected and you're just reading the words. Well, then I don't get as much information as if, as if when you read it, you're – 
your feelings, just like it was when you wrote it. You know, you're, you're back into that the feeling that goes with the reading. So all those things, you know, kind of go together to how it works. So sometimes I'm better at it than others, and it just depends on the kind of connection that I get to make with the person that's that's talking to me. But it isn't anything I particularly try to do. I get the information because I care about helping. That's really why it comes. I'm not in, you know, I'm not getting this piece and getting that piece and reading that mind and, you know, going into this database and that database. I don't think about any of that stuff. I just want to give an answer that's useful. And that's my intention. So I get the data that fulfills that intention. All right. Thank you, Tom. A lot of people have commented that uh, not only do you uh, most of the time answer their question on a personal level, but also you try to extend it out to a general level. Yeah. Well, that's well. A, that's the other thing that I'm thinking about, too, is that eventually these videos may be you know, looked at by hundreds of thousands of people. Who knows? Uh, maybe it'll take a decade for that many people to look at it. But eventually there'll be lots and lots of people who will look at it. And I also have to be mindful of saying things that a large number of those people can actually relate to and get something out of it. You know, and I need to I need to say things that are not off putting, things that are not going to create entropy, but rather reduce it. So I'm thinking about the larger audience that's going to see it. And of course, you know, if you and I were just sitting alone someplace on a, you know, on a, at across each other from a table, I would tend to be, what, I, I guess a lot more relaxed or open. I would maybe say different kinds of things because when I talk on a forum like this, I have to be aware of the larger audience over the, over the years to make sure I don't do more harm than good. I may help you, but may, may uh, you know, upset a lot of other people. So I have to be aware of that, too. So all those things kind of are all happening at the same time. and Whatever comes out of that mix is what comes out, and that's kind of the way it is. So, yeah, I do have the bigger picture as well, particularly if the question is around things that are uh, polarized or high-energy high things or things that have a lot of, of uh, traction out in the everyday world. I have to be a little more careful about what I, what I say and how I say it. All right. Thank you, Tom. Well, I'm going to channel Mario here. Let's see how this goes. MBT provides a coherent framework for finding answers to life's meaning and purpose. For me, even though MBT provides plausible answers to many important questions, I still feel that fundamentally life and consciousness are a baffling enigma. Sometimes I can't help asking myself, why should there even be an LCS or entropy? or anything for that matter. At the same time, I can't imagine there not being anything. Makes my head spin. I understand that there's no answer to that and that we just have to keep on trucking and work our, on getting our entropy down. Shut up and de-entropy. But I was just wondering, Tom, what is the mystery or unsolved problem that you wonder about? Hmm, mystery or unsolved problem. I guess the, the uh, unsolved problem I worry about is how can I provide the most useful information to the largest number of people? 
that's my challenge. Um, that's the thing that uh, concerns me. You know, you have to be careful what you say. In fact, you know, if you tell people things they're not ready for, you can do more harm than good. So it's not like you just tell everybody everything because you can do damage to people. You have to tell people just what they're ready to hear, just what they're ready to take the next step. If you tell go too far beyond, if you go to the third or fourth or fifth step down that, that path, then you'll just confuse them or often upset them or you know, give them more trouble than you give them value. So it's my constant uh, struggle is how to help the largest number of people in the biggest way possible. And that's a difficult thing when you're talking to something that 100,000 people are going to look at, you know, and you don't want to tell people anything more than what they're ready to hear. Well, some people, of course, are going to hear more than they can they can process, in which case eventually they won't look anymore. They'll stop looking at those videos because it does, it's not helpful to them. It's too much. It, uh, so I guess that's what I struggle with. But I think the person who asked the question, one of their struggles is that they're maybe not quite aware of is that they're struggling with the application. They understand the theory probably. They understand the theory real well. I mean, MBT theory is just not that hard to understand. It's very simple. Yeah, it's, it's a very simple theory. Very, uh, doesn't have a lot of moving parts. But the application is a lot trickier because now that's where we are and that's our fears we're, we're dealing with and our problems and our level of understanding. And suddenly it gets messy and confusing and difficult. And I think that's the that's the basic struggle. Yeah, okay, I see a larger conscious system, I see this, I see all these kinds of things, but when it comes to me and my life and, and the next choice I'm gonna make, that seems nearly impossible. How do I do that? How do I know that? How can I you know make low entropy choices? And that's the part of application, and that's where the struggle is. But that's also where the learning is. You don't learn much without struggle. Okay, Tom. I, I would say to make it less baffling, would you would you suggest um, more of a um, experiential um, yes, effort, exactly. perhaps, yes. which would clarify things, perhaps, yeah. like such yeah. a... Yeah, I think it was one line in my book where I say you don't you don't have to know how to do it. Just go do it. You don't have to know how. If you're constantly wrapped up in I don't know whether I'm doing it right or should this you know, should I do this or should I do that? And how can I tell a good decision from a bad decision and how the entropy is gonna fall out and you get so wadded up in confusion that you don't know what to do and you don't act. Just do. Be, connect, be aware of your choices. That's what being mindful means. It means that you're aware of what, you, of what your choices are. You're not just a zombie on automatic going through life doing stuff, but you're aware of your choices. You're aware of your fears. You're aware of who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it. So be mindful, be aware, and learn. 
And yes, just go do it. Live life. Have relationships. Make connections. And try to learn from your experience. All right, Tom, the next question is uh, coming from the MBT forum from Junior Stokes. Um, and the question is on vaccines. Now, this is one of those those subjects that you were talking about. I'd like to ask if Tom has an opinion on vaccines in terms of their safety and how they align with my big toe and its philosophy, and if he will choose to be vaccinated himself if an effective one becomes available for coronavirus. Thank well, you. I'll answer that last one first because that's easy. Yes, of course. When that vaccine becomes available, I will put my name in somewhere in the front of the list, and when it gets here, I will go get my my vaccination. And I think I go back 20 days later and get another one. It's a matter of, of risk. Okay, there is some risk in taking a vaccine. There's going to be some risk shooting anything into your arm with a needle, right? There's some risk involved with that. Okay, but there's also some risk, I guess, particularly for me, since I'm now 76, that getting COVID is also a risk. So you look at those two risks and vaccines sometimes look riskier than they are because they're given to so many people. So, you know, that's the whole point of a vaccine is you have to give it basically to almost everybody. Otherwise, it isn't going to help. I mean, the whole point of it is, is to gain this herd immunity at the end where everybody is immune. Therefore, that virus or that bacteria kind of dies out because it can't find a host. So it goes away. You know, well, we did that with polio. We've done that with a lot of things that used to be very serious and very common illnesses that don't really exist anymore. And most of that's been with vaccinations. You know, smallpox is one of those, right? Kills people. And it used to be everywhere. Well, who has ever heard of anybody with smallpox? Well, it's because we all get vaccinated for it. That's why it's not around anymore. But if you give what, um, oh, you know, we have seven and a half billion people. You know, let's say that out of that seven and a half billion people, uh, two billion of them get vaccinated. If you give two billion people anything, there's going to be a few of them that'll drop, dread from, drop dead from it, even if it's just a glass of milk. You know, if you give 200 billion, I mean, if you give two billion people a glass of milk, Somebody's going to have a lactose intolerance, which is going to cause this problem, which will cause another problem, which will interfere with the weak heart that they have, which will make their liver overworked, and they'll fall over dead because that's all it took. That was the straw that just broke the, you know, the camel's back there in that, in that health process. So there isn't anything you're going to do of any subsequent, of any, you know, substance to that many people and not find some people having a problem with it. So a lot of other medicines have much worse track records than vaccines, but they're only given to a small percentage of the population. Maybe only 100 to 1% of the population ever gets that medicine because it's given for people who have, you know, whatever. And only those people ever get that medicine. Well, when you only give it to 100,000 people, you're still going to get some some symptoms that are problematic. 
but not like when you give it to hundreds of millions of people. So you just look at the risks. The vaccine could have a problem, could hurt you. COVID-19 could hurt you. What's the probability that you get COVID-19? And if you get it, what's the probability that it will hurt you? Okay, you, then you get a vaccination. What's the probability that that will hurt you? Well, you take the, you know, you take the one that has the least potential to give you a problem. So I think that's, you know, I don't know the probability. I mean, I for a long time I just didn't bother getting any vaccinations whatsoever. I didn't get flu. I didn't get any of those things, and the reason I didn't get them was because I never got sick. I think I got flu once in my life. I just barely remember it. And I hardly ever get sick from anything. So because of that, I just didn't bother with it. But then I started doing MBT and started traveling, started talking to hundreds of people at a time, started shaking a lot of hands, you know, kissing a lot of babies, you know, giving a lot of hugs. And when you do that, traveling a lot on airplanes, shoulder to shoulder in airports. When I did that, I thought, well, it probably would be smarter. Now the risk's gone up on getting illnesses. So then it made the vaccine more of a thing that was, that it was an intelligent thing to do. So when I started traveling and interacting more with groups of people, I started getting the flu vaccine because I didn't want to get it and give it to anybody else. And so I think it's just look at the probabilities. Yes, no doubt this vaccine will hurt some people, but it'll probably hurt no more than one in, you know, what, 10,000, one in 50,000. But when they give it to a billion people and it's only one in 100,000, there's a lot of hurt people if you give that to a billion, right? people, even if it's only one in a 100,000. You're going to have lots of people die from it. Well, that's the thing with vaccines. So, yes, I will get mine, and uh, I will get it as soon as it comes out because COVID's just getting worse still. The risk is higher today than it was a month ago. It's probably going to be higher a month from now than it is today. So the risk in getting COVID just keeps getting higher and higher until we turn around and go the other way, which will probably not be until at least late spring, because we had the, in our country anyway, we had the Thanksgiving super spreader. And then a month later, we have the Christmas super spreader. And a week after that, we have the New Year's Eve super spreader. So all of these things bunched up means that the rates are just going to go high for a while, and it'll probably take us three, four, five, six months to work that off. Because one person gets it, and they infect five others, and each of those affect five others, and each of those affect five others, and you got a geometric progression that runs up the very high numbers very fast, and it takes a while before that slows down. So that's my attitude toward... Uh, uh, getting inoculations of any sort, you kind of look at it and say, what's the risk taking it? And what's the risk not taking it?
So I've changed my mind on that because my risk for not taking it went up with my traveling. And risk analysis was one of your former jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Risk analysis is one of the things I I did for many, many years, yes. So you just look at the risks and see. And you can look, you know, you can find that kind of information. You know, how many people end up with problems taking any given medicine? I mean, you go to a doc and he gives you a prescription. You ought to read that little paper that comes with it because that'll give you some idea. And there's another book you can get and go up on the web and you can get 10 times that much information with lots of graphs and, and uh, you know, a lot of the scientific detail that came with studying that drug and its effectiveness. You can get all that information and you can seriously do good risk analysis. It'll tell you exactly what the percentage is to get each one of the um, side effects. Exactly what percentage is that of the people that take this drug to have that side effect? All that's available. So that's my attitude about uh, about vaccines. They work, obviously. Goodbye smallpox. You know, goodbye polio. We've done a lot with vaccines. So they work. They have problems. What's the risk? Now, if you give them to babies and infants, it's probably a whole different set of risks than giving them to you know, 76-year-old men. So you have to look at each case, at each age group, and so on, and say, what are the risks here? Again, give it, do your best due diligence at doing the, doing the groundwork, and then go with your minimum risk. All right. Thank you, Tom. Our next question from the MBT Forum is from Pateria. Apparently, according to figures on the Internet, around 200 million land animals are killed for food every day. This works out to billions every year. This is a horrible fact, of course, and it makes me wonder what the use could be of IUOCs logging into these avatars, which have such limited and miserable lives as farmed animals. And I, I suppose she is speaking of the animal consciousness, I will mm-hmm. see. I mm-hmm. also wonder whether the animals go to a transition reality before they reincarnate, or if that is uh, not necessary for them. I've never heard anyone address these issues before, particularly the second part about transition reality at death. We hear many descriptions about what happens to humans, but what about our animal friends? If they don't go through any transition does that mean they just automatically get re-slotted into another animal avatar? Okay, well, in, in general, no, not in particular, but in general, the reincarnational process works the same for all consciousness. It's a similar kind of process done for similar kinds of reasons. Yes, animals, too, are raising the quality of their consciousness. They, too, make choices, and by those choices, they evolve or de-evolve, just like us. But the system, you know, gives attention where attention is necessary. So we have humans, and they're in their mind space, and they need a transition in order to go from one life experience to no life experience, but in between, right, where they're they're not 
<clears throat> they're no longer in that that avatar. Getting used to not being that avatar, and then getting back into the game of picking another avatar. You can't have that all happen in a, in three seconds. It would leave them confused and completely, you know, uh, overwhelmed with all that change so quickly. So it takes a little bit of time because humans tend to overthink things. They tend to want to see, well, what's going on now? Why is this happening? Why am I here? What's gonna What's gonna happen next? What does this mean? What does that mean? They do a lot of thinking. So you need more process because they have more of a, they have a larger decision space and need to do more processing. So they need more of a transition. If you take, you know, uh, let's go further down on the, on the line. Let's go down to an insect, not a dog or a cat or a horse or a deer, but let's go down to an insect level. And let's say that there's an insect that has a consciousness and make has a very small decision space. Doesn't make a lot of choices, just makes a few choices. Well, it doesn't need a very elaborate transition space because it just makes a very limited set of choices. It doesn't evolve very rapidly because it has a very limited set of choices. It's a very slow evolution. So in that case, you probably don't have a single IUOC for every bug, for every one of those insects. It'd be more like an IUOC for a hive or some other larger number. So it doesn't work. So consciousness works basically the same, but it's, it's given attention and given more detail where more detail is required. So if you have bumblebees and and uh, there's a maybe a I don't know bumblebees come in hives or not uh, or nests or what they're called but you know there may be a consciousness for that group now how many uh, you know a hundred bumblebees a thousand you know ten thousand I don't know you know it's just up to the system what does it take to gather all of that all that choice making into some sort of growth. In general, the swarm is making better choices than it did before. Okay, so that's another way to look at it. If it's, a, let's say it's your pet doggy or your pet horse or cat, then it's a little different. They have a bigger decision space than that insect, quite a bit bigger decision space. And if they happen to have evolved a lot, then they may be... Uh, um, equivalent to the to the lower end of human decision space. And now that particular animal is going to need more care. The transition needs to be a little more specific. But if that animal, even that dog or that cat, is, is uh, not very well developed as far as consciousness goes, then they may have multiple dogs or cats with one consciousness, or they may have a uh, very small uh, uh, transition, might not need a lot of transition. Again, if you have a dog that's mistreated or that's you know, it's badly treated for a long period of time, that transition is going to be longer, perhaps, than one that isn't. But probably not that much longer, but it may take a little more time for that dog to let go, let go of those things. You see, so 
think of the think of the process as being very similar for all consciousness, but depending on the needs of the consciousness, it's more or less detailed. Tom, um, in regards to these animals that are reintroduced into this PMR, those animals that were primarily food, like the large amount of them that are um, industrial food, as cattle or chickens or things like that, and they've had several lives like this, are they aware that this is their, their lot in life? Well, yes, they are. You know, they sort of are and they not are, just like us. I mean, there's a lot of humans that live in despicable conditions, too. There's a lot of humans that, that uh, you know, don't generally live very long. There's places where there's famines and places where there's, where there's uh, diseases that are a lot worse than what we're experiencing with COVID. There's, there are places where people, if they get to be, you know, 30 or 40 years old, you know, they're old. And yes, humans keep incarnating back into those places. It's not your evolution, your growth is not about being in a nice place. Your evolution and growth is about making good choices within whatever your situation that you're in. And you can do that in almost any situation. Why do humans keep, you know, Incarnating into places where you know there's you know, there's war zones and and famine and that sort of thing. Well, there's you can grow in those things. There's lots of choices, often even more dramatic and more meaningful choices, life and death choices. Life might not be real long, but it may be very rich in important choices. So in any case. Uh, Yes, animals who are food animals, they uh, don't live a real long time, just long enough to maximize out whatever their commodity is that they're selling, whether it's usually meat, I guess. And often a great deal of their life is, is not in very nice conditions either. But like anybody who grows up in not nice conditions, that's just life. It's the way, it's what you're used to. You don't, you know, it's when you're, when it's, it's when you are, a, you know, an upper class or an upper middle class human that you look at these people who are in the war zone and who are starving in a place with famine. You look at them and say, oh, how sad, how awful. Because from your viewpoint, that would be a horrible space to be in. But if you're born there, that's just the way it is. You don't know anything else. It's just the way it is. Until recently. Until recently, we have Internet. So if you happen to be one of those places that's really terrible, but you are somehow able to get hold of a computer, then you can look around and see how other people live, and now you may be more aware of it. But people who are in those kinds of rough places usually aren't walking around with computers. Maybe they have smartphones, but all of that technology is pretty expensive. And mostly people who are in horrible situations are not people with money. They're people on the bottom end of the socioeconomic situation. So, yes, they are aware of that existence. They get as much out of it as they can. 
they do have some transition. They um, they probably uh, are even better at forgetting their past life. You know, I say that past life goes like a dream. They're probably more efficient at that going. There's not a whole lot there to remember that's worth remembering. So I suspect that kind of disappears rather quickly. So they don't relive that or think about that or mull it over. That just kind of evaporates rather quickly. There's no point in dwelling on that. So it goes away, and then they come, and then they have interactions, and they make choices, and then they get slaughtered, and they come back. It's not a pretty sight, and one day, hopefully, in won't be that far out in the future, we will not consume so much meat. We'll realize that killing sentient beings because they taste good is not a good reason. That those beings, those sentient beings, they are like us. They have a much smaller decision space, but they have things they care about. They have things that are important to them. They have emotions and feelings. They have an intellect, too. They can think. They can make assessments. They have those that are special, you know, calves and their mothers are closely bonded. So it's, it's similar to us. It's just on a much less complex level. And we should respect that consciousness and give that consciousness the, you know, the, the freedom to evolve as much as it can rather than you know, grow them up to kill them. It's not a very nice thing. But that's where we are. We tend to be uncaring about other species. We care only about humans. We don't uh, see others as conscious beings just like we are. Well, not just like we are, but similar to the way we are. And until we see that, then the tendency is going to be to, to uh, not care. All right, thank you, Tom. Uh, the next question is also from Pateria from the MBT Forum. Uh, people often ask for your opinion on diet and other health matters, and I'm wondering about your point of view, if you have one, on having female dogs spayed. I don't ask you this as a health professional or a medical expert. I'm just interested to know you what you might think about it from a consciousness aspect. My vet says that this procedure is highly recommended because otherwise with each heat cycle, the dog's uterus is likely to get infected and cause severe illness or death. Looking around online, the common wisdom on this subject is that female dogs age. The hormones that fluctuate during each heat cycle change the uterus and eventually they make the dog prone to developing a uterus infection and or mammary cancer. They can say... This condition will affect one in four females that are not spayed in their first year. Having two female pups, I would rather not subject them to this procedure if it wasn't absolutely necessary. It seems strange to me that nature would have evolved 25% of all female dogs to die off prematurely because of a biological design fault if you will. 
but I know that the veterinary community must have based their observations on reliable data. I just wonder whether this situation happens to be the case now because of something related to the way we raise our dogs, perhaps the food we give them, or the fact that they are deprived from fulfilling their natural biological functions, such as giving birth. As you have dogs yourself, and at least some of them must be female, I'm wondering if you had to deliberate on this decision yourself. Um, yes, I have, because I, like you say, I have. I used to have all males until just this last bunch of dogs, and for some reason, the, the dogs are really my wife's dogs. She, she is uh, uh, <laughs> has a very strong mothering instinct and if there's no babies around to mother then a dog is the next best thing so she tends to have to have some dogs around to mother all the time as they get older then she needs younger ones because the younger ones need more mothering than the older ones so i have five dogs right now and two of them are female now all the things you said about what the vet says and so on i my own personal opinion now this is just tom campbell's opinion and it's not based on a long study it's just my opinion okay so take it for whatever it's worth veterinary medicine human medicine physics chemistry sociology all of these disciplines tend to have politically correct beliefs tend to have belief systems at the base See, with with physics and science it's base it's belief in materialism with medicine right now it seems to be a belief in pharmaceuticals you know there's a pill for everything um, they take an entirely physical viewpoint of the body they don't really appreciate or understand the mind-body connection or that the mind leads and the body follows all of that they don't understand so they just look at it and try to come up with a physical cause and when they can't they often make something up that sounds good also that political correctness is there for a couple of other reasons one to help them justify the things that they want to do and often the things that they want to do are one make more money and to justify the the procedures and other things that uh, are uh, things that they do what they learn and it becomes fundamental beliefs within that field so veterinary science is just one like all the rest of them there's a set of beliefs that vets learn in school that these beliefs they see as facts and here's what we do and here's why we do it our medical system medicine for humans is the same way it's based on sets of beliefs and often those beliefs are justifications often for a lack of knowledge so i would agree with you it is unlikely that the evolution of dogs created animals that 25 percent of them are are uh, you know going to die from uh, from disease of some sort if you leave them intact that doesn't sound too likely to me either i agree with you that doesn't sound like good design 
it sounds like other dogs that had better design would have evolved and these kind of dogs that that uh, get ill would not have lasted that long now we do know that uh, sometimes animals in the in the uh, in the wild don't live as long as dogs that are or as animals similar animals that are that are uh, what taken care of by humans but also the reverse is true there's also many times that animals who are who uh, are given less less care go to the vet less times in their lives actually live longer than those that spend more time at the vet so i would say use your own intuition look at it and say what do you think makes sense now i remember when the vets would tell us you need to have your animals neutered and spayed after they're three months old somewhere between three months and six months do it earlier the earlier the better it's good for the dog well i don't know that it was good for the dog but it was certainly good for the vet and it was easy for the homeowner that has the dogs because that's just taken care of because when dogs go into heat there's sometimes issues that go with that dogs that suddenly decide they have to climb over your fence and run loose through the neighborhood and other things or male dogs that decide to become territorial and bite and that sort of thing so there's issues and particularly like me if you have five dogs i have three males and two females you know to keep all those dogs together in my house while some of the you know females are in heat is just not a you know it's not going to to be very easy to do you'd have to have a big yard and pens and places to isolate the females unless you were also going to be a breeder and anyhow so there's all these reasons and justifications now the attitude in vets the political uh, correctness these days is not to spay and neuter early it's to is to let them go through a heat cycle for the females let them have at least one complete heat cycle and sometimes two before you spay them because otherwise they haven't fully matured they haven't you know the hormones haven't created a a uh, a complete system yet and if you neuter them too early that causes problems well before if you neutered them too late that caused problems you see so we had a 180 degree switch here on what's good for the dogs well like i say a lot of times the vets are justifying what it is they like to do and they tend to justify their political correct ideas and the things they learn in school just like physicists do so use your own intuition with your with your dogs i would think it would be a good idea to let them mature the females at least through you know one or two heat cycles until they become hormonally and you know all of their organs and everything become adult because they're still in the process of becoming but i don't say that from any deep science that's just a you know it just seems like a good idea that i don't really have any facts to back that up we know that with humans if you do something to their endocrine system you know to their glands and other things while they're small it has a very huge effect on them later 
you know, they have to go through changes and they need to secrete certain hormones at certain times. And if you interfere with those patterns, you end up with a, with an adult that uh, is dysfunctional, has, has issues and problems. So I don't think it would be particularly different with, with dogs. You know, we're all part of the same mammal classification. So we have a lot of things that are very similar. Now, leaving them unneutered, well, if you have the facility to deal with that, then, or if you are a breeder, then that would be an option. If you don't have facility to deal with that, if you have dogs and, you know, you, particularly if they're loose in the neighborhood or you walk them or whatever, uh, you're going to have, you're going to have issues are going to come up when your females go into heat. I think the male dogs for probably two or three miles in all directions will be aware of your female in heat and they will find their way to your house. And it's just another thing that you'll have to deal with, which is why most people have their animals spayed. And also there seems to generally be more animals looking for homes than there are homes for the animals. That's why you have animal shelters to take care of the surplus supply. So it's not like we, we really need a whole lot more, you know, puppies and kittens. There's lots of puppies and kittens looking for a good home. So that's the thing. But then we decide for those animals. We spay them. And our choice, our convenience, so we don't have to deal with their heat cycles. And we do that to them because that makes their life easier, we think, in the sense that they don't have to bother with the heat cycles either, and we don't have to bother with them. You don't miss what you don't have. So I don't think they walk around saying, oh, no, I've been, you know, I've been spayed. I'm so sad. You know, they they don't miss what they don't know about. So it's not hurting them in that way. Yes, just think about it. Use your own intuition. And just because a vet tells you that the veterinary science tells you that we need to do this, I would be very skeptical about that. I think your own common sense is more likely to get to the truth on big detail, on big picture questions like that than the belief-based stuff you're going to get out of, you know, a vet. Now, if it's particular stuff, here's what we do to, you know, set a foot or to deal with heartworms or whatever. Well, that's something very particular, and your vet's going to know a whole lot more about that than you will. So it's not that vets aren't valuable. They'll have a lot of detailed information that you don't know, and you should rely on them. But big picture things like that, I think your homeowner with good intuition is probably going to be less influenced by belief-based political correctness than the vet. Tom Campbell here. INMBT Events, hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. 
So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.